I'm Cinder Niemela, and along with Charlotte Gilmano, welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. Today, my guest is Dr. Rob Fazio. On September 11th, 2001, Rob Stad, Ronald Fazio, was on the 99th floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. Ron looked out the window that fateful morning and was one of the first people to see the North Tower hit. At the time, Rob was a graduate student. He recalls the next few days as he, his brother, and mother searched for Ron. However, they learned that while Ron had successfully exited the building to safety, he returned to hold the door open for others. Tragically, Ron Fazio was killed that day. On 9-11, Rob lost his dad in an act of kindness. What did he learn about himself and navigating challenging times? Rob tells us how he and his family turned their dad's tragic death into his legacy. They formed a not-for-profit agency called Hold the Door Open for Others. Their mission is to empower people to grow through loss and adversity to achieve their dreams. They teach the skills of resilience and strength to navigate loss and grief. We all experience loss of varying intensities. It's our shared human experience, but we humans aren't necessarily equipped to navigate loss in a healthy way. Rob gives us practical strategies for proactively responding to the wave of emotions that follow loss. Rob covered a number of practical topics for leaders and individuals, mental toughness, growth mindset, executive presence, resilience and growth skills, how leaders can help people prepare for adversity, and the hierarchy of loss. Stay to the end, Rob talks about how we met. Rob's expertise is in sports psychology, global leadership, and organizational success. He teaches clients how to remove barriers to function at optimal levels. His approach to advising combines original research on power, influence, conversations, and motivation. His book, Simple is the New Smart, features success strategies gleaned from over a decade and a half of working with athletes, executives, and people driven toward excellence. Rob's advice on navigating turbulent times and politics has been featured in the New York Times and on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and local networks. Rob has been featured on NBC News, in Forbes, the New York Daily News, CEO Magazine, the Philadelphia Business Journal, just to name a few. Links to resources mentioned and for connecting with Rob, along with show notes, are on inspiredwisdom.us. Rob, welcome to the call. Oh, yeah, I'm thrilled to do it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I would love for you to start before 9-11. Weren't you a, a, in sports psychology? I work with a variety of different athletes and teams at the college level and also partnering with the NFL and PGA on different life skills programs through sport. And then 9-11 happened. And would you tell us the story about your dad and how you and your family managed through that? Absolutely. So 
you know, it's one of those um, situations, obviously, no one wants to have to go through, but it has certainly impacted my life in a very positive way from a personal and professional way. Uh, and no one wants to lose a loved one, but I, I feel fortunate in the way that that I lost my dad. And the reason for that being is, uh, you know, he was in the Twin Towers on 9-11 in the, in the South Tower, and he was one of the first people to see Tower 1 get hit. He was up on the 99th floor. He saw the tower get hit and, uh, and friends and told them to leave the building and to get out. They were being told to stay in the building but he was pretty forceful and assertive in that moment. And the story goes, people kept calling our house and asking for my dad and saying, you know, where's your dad? We saw him. He was holding the door for us. He was helping us. He was holding the door. And uh, unfortunately, you know, he, he didn't make it. Uh, but we have just um, tens and tens of stories of people whose lives he saved. And that's really became an impetus and an uh, inspiration for a lot of the nonprofit work we do around helping people deal with trauma and adversity. But I cannot imagine what you went through. What's interesting to me is that we can actually see you being interviewed over the years. And I'll yeah. put some links in the show notes because you were interviewed by, how do you say his last name? Oh, Neil Cavuto was, Neil. Um, yes, all the networks were covering it. And, and Neil really stuck with the story every year. Uh, yes, Neil Cavuto. Yeah. And how is it that you uh, met him? Was he there? No. Right after September 11th, people just wanted to learn. The biggest reason we were getting on media right after 9-11 was because that was the way we were looking for our loved ones. We all created posters and, and, and pictures. We thought our loved ones were in hospitals or, or knocked unconscious somewhere in the street. So the family members uh, really worked with the media to get information out about our loved ones, you know, their height, their weight, what they look like, uh, all those things. And that's how a lot of the media relationships started. And then the first anniversary, so I was in my doctoral training in psychology at the time, and I couldn't understand why the country wasn't doing something to help prepare people for the re-traumatization of 9-11 on an anniversary seeing the towers and knowing how much coverage would be there, I kept asking those questions to my professors. And, and I said, why isn't someone doing something? And they said, well, why don't you? Um, so that's why we created that first workbook to help people prepare for the acts of 9-11. And Neil Cavuto took a liking to the, to the story. And uh, his favorite part was on our flyer, we had put on the bottom, if found, please feed Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Because uh, that was his favorite candy. He had a heart condition, but he would always sneak mm -hmm. his Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. So it was a really, a really nice, meaningful, uh, you know, uh, gesture that he connected to. And every year he just let me come back and, and tell the story. And it helped us reach more people outside of 9-11 that were dealing with different types of adversity, sickness, trauma. So it's really been a, a powerful uh, relationship. Hmm. What did you learn about yourself as you healed from that loss? I learned that I'm strong and I didn't know, I didn't know if I was strong. Uh, I know growing up I was weak. I knew that. And then I always was fascinated about developing 
strength. And I think that my doctoral studies in sports psychology and counseling psychology really helped me develop that strength. And so while going through it, it was almost, I was, I had two, two sides. I had the, the, the grieving son and then I had this person that was my other part of myself. That was my internal coach. And I knew all about mental toughness. And so while I was grieving, I was also growing. And while I was upset, I was still focused on looking for my dad. And that was just such a huge part of, uh, of my development. And I remember asking as I was going, finishing up my, my program, and I was flying back and forth from Richmond, Virginia, looking for my dad and trying to finish my dissertation. And or at that time, actually, it was a thesis, I'm sorry. But I was doing these things because I was determined to stay in school because my dad had sacrificed so much. And I remember one day talking to one of my professors and they, you know, always said, hey, whatever you need, you want to talk? And I said, you know, I'm walking the streets of New York City and I don't know if the strength is in crying or in staying focused and looking for my dad. And uh, he, said, he said it's both. And that, that really made me realize how important strength is. Mm-hmm. You mentioned mental toughness. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think for me, it, it has, um, it comes down to realizing and being aware of the waves of emotions that come. Mm-hmm. And rather than just standing there and bracing yourself, which is more likely for the wave to knock you over, um, and obviously, if you're blindsided by a wave, you're going to get knocked over more easily. I look at it as being on the beach, seeing the waves, know that they're coming. It's an expectation that they're coming and knowing that they're always going to come and go and being prepared and having multiple strategies for how you're going to deal with the wave. Are you going to go underneath it? Are you going to turn to the side? Are you going to hop over it? Or are you going to ride it in? Uh, so in, in life and in work, Every day I have the expectation there's going to be a wave of emotion of something that I don't want to happen. And I have to realize that it's about doing something with that wave that is a strategy that is intentional as opposed to the wave just blindsiding me. Hmm. No, that's a, that's a really nice way to look at it. How, how did your mother navigate through this time? Uh, it was obviously very difficult. I mean, she's, she's an old school Sicilian, so if she could still wear black every day and think about my dad all day, she would. Uh, fortunately, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work, um, and she's done a lot of work on, on herself to enjoy life and her grandchildren and, and uh, develop her own type of strength. I think it was a lot of it had to do with family and friends and having an outpouring of support. I also had to do with getting professional help, you know, working with a psychologist and um, all throughout and realizing the signs and, you know, what we've learned about post-traumatic growth uh, and is that you can have trauma and grow at the same time, but you have to deal with the trauma first. You've got to be able to process that trauma um, and those deep events in order, in order to be able to heal in a healthy way. And so uh, we, she took it head on and, and did a lot of work on that. And it was a, you know, a lot of, lot of crying, a lot of yelling, a lot of eating and a lot of healing. Mm-hmm. From this experience, you and your family came together and started 
hold the door for others. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about that, how, how you started that and the mission of Hold the Door for Others? Right. We started that right after September 11th. We knew that we wanted to do something for my father's legacy. A lot of people are saying, how about you do a scholarship? I think scholarships are great. I wanted to have a, a, a deeper impact on the world where it wasn't just one person a year. And I really wanted to do something that was going to match the pain with some type of growth. Philosophically, knowing that if people have growth skills and have strength, they're less likely to get impacted by adverse events, whether it's at work and it's a crisis like, a, you know, like layoffs or business being shut down, or it's some type of, you know, personal um, catastrophe. And we set out to do research and create <clears throat> ways in which people can buffer the negative impact of trauma and will be more likely to grow through, through the experience. So our, our mission is to help people help themselves grow through adversity. And what I think is really different about us is early on, so you know, 17 years ago, we were on the forefront of this whole idea of, of having a growth mindset, even in the most adverse of times. And we were really talking about, and, and we call them growth consultants, people that we trained, really helping people navigate the experience of a, a, a really different, difficult event and also being growth oriented and strength oriented. So our, you know, our, our rule was if you came to one of our events, it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be distraught. It's okay to tell your story. However, at the end of the day, you're going to have to learn at least one growth skill and, and develop some type of strength. So you're stronger when you go out than when you came in. Mm. So tell us a little bit about the growth skills. Three foundational resources, which are connect, care, and challenge. And so in every instance, we start out with self-connection. So people being having awareness and understanding of what's going on. Self-care is making sure that people know how to take care of themselves, whether it's exercise, relaxation, self-talk. Uh, and then self-challenge is the aspect of where people need to challenge themselves to grow in some way and, and take a step forward. And then there's eight resources. It's called the, the Others Framework, uh, which is optimism, true meaning, humor, emotional intelligence, resilience, self-confidence, and spirituality. And then Others tying it all together, which is about relationship building. And so we have different activities, different um, development skills you can learn, in relation to each of those resources. And we have a, a self-awareness tool that we use to help people get a sense of baseline where they are and in areas where they need to grow. That's awesome. Sounds like a very comprehensive program. When we spoke before, we talked about the hierarchy of loss. These skills in this program applies not only to people who are experiencing grief or loss through death, but also leaders and executives or employees. Can you talk a little bit about this hierarchy of loss? Yes. Yeah, so the, the hierarchy of loss is depending on how public or how quote unquote traumatic something is perceived, the more empathy you get from people. So for example, 
if someone came to one of our hold the door days and their child just died, motorcycle accident, what have you, and then someone dealing with not getting a promotion, right? Different type of loss. People are going to be much more empathetic to someone who just lost a child. So that's pretty much on the high end of, of hierarchy. So let's put that in the business context. If someone loses a child, people are much more empathetic at the workplace to them. Uh, however, if someone had aspirations to do something and it doesn't happen, that's also a loss. And they're likely to get less empathy. So it's more important for them to realize how to navigate it themselves and how to develop some of these growth skills and strength. So they come out, they're stronger. The event becomes a catalyst for growth as opposed to something where they feel like a victim. No matter what the situation is, at the end of the day, you're the only person that is with yourself for the rest of your life, all your life. And so the more to the extent that you can become self-reliant and realize I've got to create my path and it's okay to be bummed out and it's okay to have tough days, but you can't make that a permanent fixture because we know how powerful our minds are. And if we set them on the path, they're going to reinforce that path and find through all that stuff around confirmation bias. And they're going to find information to reinforce that narrative. So if you're saying, why did this happen to me? Your mind's going to tell you why it happened. And it's going to put you in a mindset of thinking that something happened to you and, and something is wrong, as opposed to figuring out what that first next step is and what you're going to do to get to where you want to go and to focus on your aspirations. When we think about Carol Dweck's, some of Carol Dweck's work, as I understand it, it's the growth mindset is, are you open to the moment and open to change or are you, yes. you know, fixed on what your own beliefs are? Yes. So Carol Dweck's stuff and David Rock's stuff are great. They put science to something that was more of a, a gut feeling on our part 17 years ago. A lot of our stuff was based on cognitive behavioral therapy. And so there was empirical support to what we're doing. But the neuroscience has become more mainstream now that that is explained better. And I think that's powerful, especially with leaders. When you explain them that our, our minds are more elastic than we thought they are, it's so much more powerful. I think the other thing is from a leadership perspective, when a crisis happens, the leader's under a microscope and the organization takes on the DNA of the leader. So small decisions on the first moves that a leader makes in a crisis really brand the organization. So it's so important to, you know, first focus on safety, right? If it's something that has to do with safety and then focusing on your people. And in parallel, you can focus on the business and business continuity. The mistake people, executives make off the time is they just think of the business and shareholders and business continuity and don't do enough messaging around why it's important for people. The other thing where businesses make mistakes is in a crisis that they cause, they're not willing to sacrifice something. And people want to see you sacrifice something if you created some type of crisis. Mm. Oh, so a couple of questions come to mind. In creating a crisis, sure. I mean, we hear a lot about disruption and uh, disrupting the workplace to keep it kind of resilient, but it creates change and chaos and uncertainty for people. What is your perspective on the healthy way to create disruption in the workplace? 
If you look at the most early work on resilience, it has to deal with two factors. So they looked at, at children and they looked at developing resilient people. The two factors are support and challenge. In parallel, that's what makes strong people. If you just have support, you, it's disempowering and people become weak. If it's just challenge, people don't grow because they don't have the space to develop and, and think things through. So in change initiatives and in disruption, if it is known that there's both support and challenge there and it's organizationally top down, it's part of the culture and the climate, I think that's when you get successful change because it becomes about transition, which is something that is internal and a process as opposed to something that's happening to you. That's really key factors. And that, that philosophy is what we took. And I use this all the time in my executive advising work. It's not just the idea of being supportive or not just the idea of challenging people. It's both. So that idea of connect, care, and challenge I use all the time working with senior executives, right? I understand them. I listen to their story and let them know that I care for them on their same team and that I challenge them and I challenge them tough. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of a company or an executive that you've worked with that has successfully maneuvered through change? Yeah, sure. It's oftentimes organizations, whether it's a hospital or a business, where there's something going on, a business factor that they don't have control in. So let's say it is a series of layoffs. There's no questions up. We, we have to do a reduce in force of 10%. Some of the best leaders that I've worked with are really good at realizing what the landscape is and what the things that are just uncontrollable and communicating that and saying just that, this is a tough time, here's where we are, and then talking about how they're gonna do everything in their power to make this as positive as a transition as possible. So the leader will, in this time, communicate much more so than they have ever before. They will have a group of people that they know are loud detractors and make sure they're aware of what all the things are that might blindside blindside them. They'll have a group of champions that are positive people that they know are going to, no matter what, do what's best for the company. And then they create situations that are the best possible outcomes. So they take their group of people and they say, we've got to lay off this amount of people. Let's figure out if we can position you in, an, in another part of the business, or let's see if we can help you in your transition externally and support you in finding a new job. And it's not just, a, it's not an event, it's a process. So they time it out, they think through things, they layer it, they partner with people. It's a very humanistic approach. So the, the numbers are the same as far as what needs to happen as far as cutting numbers, but the way they do it is less surgical and more humanistic. I like that. I've worked with some leaders who say that they may feel guilty about taking time for themselves and doing yeah. self-care. What does yeah. that look like for some of the leaders who are going through it? So the bottom line is, it's pretty simple. If you don't take care of yourself, whenever there is pressure, you're just going to revert to doing whatever feels good and what your natural tendency is. 
And think about if you went to make business decisions and you just did them based on what felt good as opposed to objectively looking at things. So a, an emotionally drained mind and body is not a strategic mind and body. So there's a business case for it. The other thing is one of my favorite quotes I heard is uh, guilt's like being in a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but gets you nowhere. Right. So if people get caught up in that. Oh, and waste energy and like, oh, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. Then they're focusing on the, on the wrong things. Plus, there's something about modeling. I think in American culture, we get very much so caught up in these metaphors and, and military metaphors, which is like, you know, first feet on the ground, last feet to, to leave the, the battlefield. And that's great in war. But when something is going on on a yearly basis and a daily basis and it's a grind, you have to role model doing things that help people be more effective and productive employees. And we know that people are more engaged, loyal, and more productive when they're able to be re-energized. And ways to do that are helping people focus on their sweet spots and their strengths, but also demonstrating the importance of, of self-care. Mm-hmm. And Cinder, that self-care doesn't mean that we have to have cops and take naps in every organization or a lot of organizations choose to do that. It can mean that there's programs that teach people inside of work how to practice self-care at their desk, or more importantly, outside of work, how do you manage your stress and having active ways to do things to practice self-care. Mm-hmm. Actually, this is probably a really good segue to your book, Simple is the New Smart. How is it that you came to write this book? I've always had a dream of writing a book and, and partially I think that's because I was always told early on that I wasn't very smart. So, you know, back when I was a kid in in school with all these standardized tests, I didn't really get things. My reading comprehension wasn't very good. And then when I went into graduate school or actually before graduate school, I was basically told to not pursue a doctorate because the chances of me getting in were slim to none with none being much more likely. And so I've always been driven by negative messages. I'm one of those weird ones like that. So it it really was a passion of mine to try to communicate what I've seen over the last 30 years or so working with people, the things that I've seen that have helped people become successful and put it in a way that people like me could understand. The idea of having things based in research and experience, but putting it in a way that is appetizing, digestible, and can be memorized so you can apply it right away. Yeah, nice. Success strategies you've gleaned over a decade and a half of working with athletes. What, what have you learned? Yeah, athletes and uh, executives, leaders. I, I've learned that no matter how much you coach someone or how much you teach them to do something, if they don't believe it's important, they're not going to do it. And if they can't remember it, it's useless. Mm. So that is my biggest thing. And I, I say, what's your one? I'm having one thing that's really important for you that you're going to change and focus on. So when I do executive advising, when we start off, we talk about the one thing that if nothing else, you're actually going to turn around and become an expert on. So let's say it's an executive that wants to get better at their executive presence. Well, 
I challenge them to become an expert on it. I challenge them to coach people on it. I challenge them to go do deep dives on the research and to develop their framework, as well as me adding my insights around it. Um, so I think, that's a, I think that's a big thing. Uh, mm. Another thing that was really important is to teach people how much control they have over guiding their business and their life. And it's very easy to talk about the idea of have a positive mindset. It's another teaching people over the course of the day, all the things that they're doing to defeat themselves. I'm big on replacing our minds. You know, they have code. They're, they constantly are holding on to stories and creating things. And in times of adversity and change, when there's so much pressure, we create stories that are more negative than the actual story. So I like to get people to do a lot of understanding the difference between facts and feelings uh, and, and where they spend their energy and, and how they focus. Uh, that's, a big, that's a big part of it, as well as the whole idea of playing a role in other people's success is, you know, I, I think that we've gone very far with this idea of a competitive mindset, which is, which is great in, in sports. However, in business, collective wisdom is so much more effective. And I think people get too caught up in winning conversations as opposed to realizing that the best winners are actually losers. They know when to lose a, a negotiation. They know when they should take a step back and let other people step up just for the purpose of giving a person the spotlight. Uh, so it's a lot of self-strategy to match the business strategy. Mm. Nice. The book itself is on the success strategies that you've learned. Thank you for going <laughs> through that. I think it's really helpful to have the foundation in sports psychology. There's just a balanced approach to being an athlete and being a master athlete, there's this focus that they have and a, yes. a discipline to the sport and then a balance. I mean, an athlete just can't go on no sleep and no food and no rest. They do balance. Exactly. Yep, absolutely. And they're, they're also good at the whole body, mind, spirit. My body mm -hmm. is what has to be in tip top shape and so does my mind. And I have to have some sense of purpose in what I'm doing. Uh, and that's really powerful. And I think, you know, especially working with people in business, this idea of being connected to something greater than myself has become a really big factor. Mm, that's a good one. I was just talking with an executive the other day about purpose and being connected to something bigger than themselves because they've got amazing energy. She loves her job and she has a clearly defined purpose. Can you give us a couple examples of executives who maybe didn't have a well-defined purpose greater than themselves and how they shifted that? Sure. Let's say, so a surgeon that I would work with, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of different types of doctors and surgeons are notoriously known for saying things like, why do we need to talk to people if I can just cut, right? There's nearly no reason to do that. And so there's purpose, big P, capital P, which is the, uh, my, my purpose is that I'm helping people or making a difference or helping them walk better. And then there's purpose, small P, which is trying to teach people what their role is and how it makes an impact. So for a surgeon, they might say, listen, at the end of the day, I need to bring in a certain amount of revenue for the hospital. Plus, I love being 
the best in my field and I want to be known as the best. The rest of the stuff really doesn't matter to me. In those situations, what I do is I talk to them and it's a process. It takes some time. At first, they're like, why are you in my office? I really don't need to talk about this stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> but eventually, over time, <laughs> over time, through that process of connect, care, and challenge, once I develop a relationship and I can demonstrate some value and have credibility, I can push them on things and ask questions or be blunt and say, do you think your residents will actually be more productive and you can make more money if you help them see the purpose and what they're doing and why you're pushing them to do certain things? Those conversations end up being very, very impactful. The best thing that I'm able to do is when I'm able to shadow clients, whether it's docs or execs, and they'll say things like, Rob, no matter what, you're not going to see anything, right? This is just what I do. And I told you everything. And sure enough, every time I do shadowing, I'll find some things where I can help them tweak and take a look at it. Those kind of touch point conversations where you have your direct observation are really valuable. Mm. And that perhaps is a good uh, segue to the motivational currency calculator. I love that name. Break it down for us. How, what is it and how is it that you came about uh, doing this? Yeah, so this is uh, our latest work and where I've been doing most of my keynote speaking as well as advising around. And there's a lot of different frameworks around motivation. Some of them are complicated. Some of them have no backing whatsoever and they're just kind of words that rhyme and such. And I try to morph the two, right? I want to connect some of the research to the practical aspect. What I do is it either needs to have the rhyme or start with the same letter so people can remember it and apply it in the, within the next hour. There was a Harvard psychologist, uh, his name is David McClellan, and he came up with this idea of social motives. And he studied for years what underneath uh, people's personality, what drives them. So given any situation, they're likely going to be motivated and pulled in a certain direction. Based on his theory and some research that I've done on the social motives as well as some other aspects of motivation, I came up with the four Ps of what I call motivational currency. And the idea is we're all coin operated. It's a matter of realizing which coins are work for each person. Now, I think psychologists have gone way too far with the idea of putting people in boxes and giving them codes and colors and forcing people to be in one box or color the other. I think people are a little bit more complex. And I think you can have multiple motivators. While as you might have one primary, you could have more than one that is strong. So the four Ps are performance, people, power, and purpose. And performance is about achievement. It's about accomplishing results. People is about harmony, relationships, teamwork. And power is about influence, advising, having an impact. And purpose is about having a connection to a higher meaning, being connected to something greater than just yourself, having a natural desire to want to help others. And this combination of four you can have a strength of high, medium, or low across all four of them. And there's different profiles. So someone who's really high in performance, really low in people, and really high in power, 
and low in purpose tend to be really good turnaround or change leaders because they go in and make things happen. What's more important to know is it's your profile gives you some awareness of where you're like directions you're likely to get pulled in. But what really matters is how good you can flex. So we call it recognition, which is your own motivational currency, reading, which is understanding and reading other people's motivational currency, and then leading, which is being able to adapt and adjust and use language associated with other people's motivational currency. And what we found is that makes you just much more influential because people are more willing to, to be influenced by you. Mm, it's exciting. And they can take the assessment on your website, and I will provide a link for that. I thought it was just really interesting. So in going back to the surgeon, not to pick on him, uh, hopefully he won't listen to this. No, no, don't worry. There's, there's several, so there won't be any uh, <laughs> one, one person. Based on your description, would you say that he was motivated by performance and power? Yes. And usually that's the case. Best case scenario is if someone has either people or purpose to help offset some of the power and the performance, that is really helpful because you can play into that. So for example, this person did care about a lot of things outside of surgery. It was just a matter of when he was in the game in the zone, that's what he was doing. Tapping into and pointing out that, hey, listen, if you weren't in the operating room, what would you be thinking about? What would you care about? And let's use that as a framework to realize other people have other ways they need to be communicated to, um, just like you do when you're outside of the operating room. Nice. I like that. How long ago did you develop this? The assessment probably three years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And now it's just starting to get much more momentum, more Fortune 500 companies using it. And I like using it in, in coaching, but also, you know, people always talk about, well, how do you motivate millennials? And they think it's like this one size fits all, but it's more about a tailored approach. You could take a look at an individual as opposed to saying, oh, they're a millennial and say, all right, what is this person motivated by? Also, we're starting to get more and more as a data looking at different things like gender, ethnicity, industry, level of role in a, in a business. I'm pretty excited about it. You know, I noticed that one of the P's was not passion. And there's been a lot written, (laughs) a lot of arguments out there about follow your bliss or don't follow your bliss. What is the best approach? And I noticed that passion was not one of the P's. Can you say a little bit about passion and purpose? I think passion is the result of being aligned with your motivational currency. I think if you're doing things that tap into your motivators, you're going to be passionate about doing it. So it's like the mm-hmm. work on flow, right? If mm-hmm. there's challenges, but you believe you have the skill set and it's a fit for what you enjoy doing, you're going to have passion about it. If it's a complete mismatch to what your motivators are, it's going to be stressful and you're likely not going to be passionate about what you're doing. That's a brilliant way to look at it. I like that a lot. In thinking about the last... Uh, 16 years or so, what's the most important advice you would have for a leader? Develop your strength. Uh, Become strong. And by that, I mean, knowing your blind spots, knowing what your strengths are, making sure that you're open to having people around you that are just as strong or stronger than you. Uh, I think strength is around sticking up for the people that don't have positional power. I, I call it success through strength. So your own success, as well as other people's success, 
being that strong person. And something that I've been doing a lot of work and research around now is this idea of subtle strength. So don't mistake being aggressive with strength. Oftentimes, the most strong and influential people are the ones that have subtle strength. And it's about being intentional, demonstrating backbone as well as respect. And I think that's what the most powerful leaders are able to communicate and demonstrate. Oh, you bring up such a good point. A lot of the coaching I do, particularly with women, but this can also be with men, is around assertiveness or aggressiveness. They tend to be quiet or they're quiet in how they assert their point of view, especially with um, startups in the Bay Area. They're not always arguing at every meeting. So, you know, are they really a good fit for this entrepreneurial company because they're not aggressive? A lot of times people get feedback on their quote unquote executive presence and own presence. And I'll say, well, what does that exactly mean? Well, a lot of the people are very dominant in conversations and they want me to do more of that. And, and it's more about leveraging what you have and speaking up when you can. It can be a differentiator if you don't fall into that pit of, I've got to say something just to say something, or I've got to come across as aggressive. It's more about strength and the way you demonstrate and communicate that. And I think it's, I think it's a sign of strength if you're able to not just get pulled into a meaningless push around conversation. Mm-hmm a whole topic we could spend an hour talking sure. about. And, <laughs> yeah, and I yeah. love that topic, executive presence and assertiveness. What's one thing you know now that you wish you knew earlier? I, I, I would say that as much as people say there's no excuse for hard work and that's a cliche, it's so true. So realizing people talk about, oh, these people on LinkedIn have this great platform or this person's gets these book deals, all those people, or let's say the high majority of them didn't buy their way to that. They worked their butts off in some way, shape or form. They took risks and they had to be strong. They had to push things. They had to make sure they had enough money to pay their expenses as well as take some financial risk to get to where they are. I see very few successful people that haven't put the time and commitment into their craft and building their platform. So point is, it might be simple, but it's not easy. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, there is a lot of hard work to that. And again, back to athletes, that there's a discipline and a lot of hard work to being an Olympic athlete or on the NFL, yes. which is also where you, where you work. Uh, yeah, what's a habit or a mantra that keeps you focused? Uh, a habit, I would say, is... I'd go back to the idea of focus. One of my favorite stories is about Bill Gates and Warren Buffett when they first met. Bill Gates didn't want to meet Warren Buffett and Bill Gates' mom puts them together at a dinner with other people and she asks everyone to write down one word that they think directly contributed to their success and unbeknownst to both Bill Gates and Warren Buffett on a piece of paper, they wrote the same word, which was focus. And it's another thing that's simple, but it's not easy. If you have that one thing that every day when you get up, you do something to work towards. So for example, for me, it's the next book. What do I do every day to get to the next book? That's what I think really differentiates people that get by and people that make things happen. Mm, I bet that's in your book as well. Actually, I heard that story afterwards, but it'll be in the next one. 
Mm. Okay, great. What is your next book on? The main philosophy is going to be around subtle strength, uh, which is the idea of Mm. being intentional and demonstrating both the idea of having backbone as well as respect. And I'm really getting deep into how do you change people's minds that are alpha personalities and how you work with alphas and how you help alphas realize the importance of collaboration and collective wisdom. Oh, that's great. That's the topic we were just talking about. Yeah. What's important for people listening to know about either the work that you do or about, you know, just having this growth mindset and being able to transition through challenges? To expect that things aren't going to go your way and realize that it's a process and don't get so caught up in what didn't go right get more caught up in what you can do to make things go better. I also think the value of mutually beneficial relationships or partnerships. So earlier on, I made so many mistakes around where I would develop something or do something. And I focused so much on needing to build my brand and such, as opposed to helping someone else be successful and and use that. And that I think plays much more towards Uh, both parties or more people being successful as opposed to just being caught up in your own little world. That's great. Thank you for that. And it's a trap that we can fall into, especially if people are working alone or in a very competitive environment. Yes, absolutely. It has been so great to catch up with you. I really appreciate your being on the call. Absolutely, Cinder. It's great to uh, reconnect with you. I mean, you know, I should I should uh, let people know how we initially met because this is I think is a really funny story. So I was in graduate school and I saw the cover of Fortune magazine. You were on the cover on a sailboat coaching someone. I had never done executive coaching or any coaching, and I shot you an email. You were gracious enough to hop on the phone with me. I was just learning about the field, and you also helped me with my resume to try to get an internship in working and consulting. So you were a big part of me starting my career. I I hope you realize that. Oh, thank you for that. Quite unsolicited feedback. You know, I was going to say something about how we met, but honestly, I couldn't remember. (laughs) (laughs) I remember my, you know, my girlfriend at the time, she's like, you're just going to contact the person on the cover of Fortune. I'm like, why not? Like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's, it's like we're meant to be on this journey together. Right. And someone, you know, for you, that was just unselfishly, probably because some element of purpose, willing to help someone out. And by you doing that, I think there's a lot of people that I've been able to help out as a result of that. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that so much. And I will put all your contact information in the show notes and summarize it at the end. But Rob, thank you so much for being on the call. I so appreciate it. I'm all right, Cinder Niemela, great. And, uh, and you've we'll been stay, listening we'll to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential. For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, design a fulfilling and prosperous life that engages your talents and passions.